left. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Hello and welcome to How to Pakistan. I'm your host, Musharraf Zaini, and I beat you to the intro. Yes, great. And this is Fazi Zaka. And the song you just heard, or a little bit of it, was Living Colors' Cult of Personality. I don't know if you had heard it when it came out. I, I mean, it's a really old song, so... Yeah. In keeping with my age, of course I've heard it. Okay, I love this song. I think it's a really awesome riff. But why, why would you start with Cult of Personality? What are you thinking? What is, what, what is the plan for what we're going to discuss today, Fussy? So I actually think that we're back at this one amazing point in Pakistan's trajectory <laughs> where the Cult of Personality across different political parties is all being questioned based on really strong stances they took. So, so you, mean, you mean, of course, the, the hero of the democratic movement in Pakistan, Maulana Fazur Rahman. We've got him. It gave people hope. <laughs> no, but my favorite, is, my favorite is like half our friends falling over each other, yeah. waxing eloquent about the great liberal lion that is Maulana Fazur Rahman. I was thinking Tony Benn is turning in his grave. Yeah. Watching, watching people fall over themselves, uh, trying, to, trying to define or reshape the Molana's politics. Yeah, so I, I think people were probably really desperate if they actually thought he was there for exactly that. But as far as seeing him as someone who was somebody who could make a chink in the armor become a gaping hole through let's say, an opportunistic bandwagoning through him. Okay, I, I just want to just, I want to, I yeah. want to just dissociate myself. Chink in the armor. Yeah. That's racist. I reject it. Okay. Uh, a gaping hole somewhere? That's, yeah. that's obscene. I reject it. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with you right now, but uh-huh. this is not right. I never thought you'd bring the woke wars to me at least. <laughs> <laughs> so woke yeah but anyhow and then then you've got Imran Khan who promised listen it's it's pretty simple you know some things you can claim they're they're yours yeah but some things you like you know your dad gives you so you don't you don't claim those. Like, those yeah, are your yeah. dads, right? So, like, you can't, you can't, like... I mean, is that... Oh, yeah, I mean, that's accurate. But, you know, he thought that, you know, if it's all in the family, but Did you hear his speech today? Uh, we're recording this on the 17th of November. Yeah. Um, he gave a speech today, the Prime Minister did, at the opening of the Nawaz Sharif Highway. Sorry, uh, the the Hazara motorway. Yeah, um, and that's why he was angry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he was really angry. Like, yeah, I, I was like, I honestly, I had to. 
And I mean, this is not the first time this has happened, but I had to do like a triple take to like, a, I had to ask somebody, I was like, why is he so mad? Yeah. And I mean, they said the same thing. They said, it's because he's having to launch Nawaz Sharif's projects. <laughs> Apparently during the speech, he's like, yeah. listen, highways are no path to progress. Yes. While inaugurating. <laughs> I was like, man, he's so awesome. I, I, I swear. <laughs> yeah, but it, it also shows his frustrations these days because if you look at how clear he's been that one of his election promises is making I'm these people somebody pay. That, somebody that handsome is frustrated. That's so, <laughs> but, you know, the other thing I found really interesting, by the way, is the way the opposition used the name Imran Ahmed Khan Niazi to throw a point on him as if his lineage is compromised. I found it interesting that he insists on calling Bilawal Zardari only. And again, it's if Imran Khan doesn't want to be called Niazi, I think that's a legitimate choice and people should respect it. The same with Bilawal, if he wants to be called Bilawal Bhutu Zardari. But uh, once again, you look at it. But I, I, I did think one thing. So wait, I, wait. Yeah. Before we do this, you know, Imran is Emmy or Kaptan. Yes. Is Bilawal Billa? Yeah. Billu or Billy? So I wish Billy was more popular. Billy would no, be kind no, of Billy, cool. Billy, yeah, Billy would be cool, but yeah. the problem is that people would turn it into Billy. Yeah. Would, would, you're, yeah, you're yeah you're right. That? Are you down with that? Because I'm not. Because I think that I don't like where where that where that's going. Like yeah. for anyone. Yeah. I mean, Emmy and Kaptan are both. Yeah. You know, they're both neutral. I mean, yeah. more better than neutral. Yeah. I mean, Kaptan is like. Captain. And the problem is, Ibrad skilled Billo, right? So that you got use as well. No, no, but you also can't do Billo because, again, the connotation is exactly. Yeah. I mean, a lot of PTI supporters love it. But, yeah. You know, it just says a little bit about them more than it does about Bilabal. But in terms of nicknames, I'm wondering, you know. Bilabal. What would a good nickname for him be? I think Billa. Billa. Like, yeah, yeah. It, just, it adds like a, a certain gruffness that yeah. obviously isn't there right now at least. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think he's got, uh, I think he's got claws. Like I think there was a tweet today that I thought was uh, interesting. It's pretty direct. And Which the one that he does the... Like I've been in politics for like whatever, like a short period of time. You're like a 70-year-old, like, you know, man-child. Right. You know, <laughs> so I, I thought that was, that was really interesting. Um, I also think the fact that he's living rent-free inside yeah. Imran Khan's head yeah. with absolutely zero current political... Like, what is the PPP today? Yeah. Like, if you're worried about the PPP, then, like, newsflash, you need to be worried about you. Yeah. What, what is the PPP? It's like a nothing party yeah. with nothing going on for it, delivering nearly nothing, uh, with its leadership in jail, uh, totally compromised on like literally every front. Why would any serious gangster look at the PPP and wonder, oh, whoa? So I think I think that's I'm scared a- of them. Like if Imran Khan is talking about Bilawal Bhutto Zardari, yeah. He must know something that we don't about how viable the PPP is in like DHA, where yeah. where the PTI tends to win, yes. or in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa urban or yeah. Peshawar Valley, which yeah. the PTI dominates entirely. Thank you, Fasiza. Yes, from it's our gift to you guys. It Valley. keeps 
on giving. Yes, yes. But but no, I, I, I actually think that I, I wonder one of the things that when I saw the speech today and then because it's it's a change of tone from like a week ago where suddenly everyone became really interested in the health of Noah Sharif and that the politics of this nation needs to be a, above beyond petty point scoring and we should look at humanitarian issues. But I'm just saying look at it this way. If you've got you've got Fazlur Rahman who's gone back and he doesn't have enough face saving for what he did, uh, arguably the threat was seen so massive that he could have moved to some degree and had some leeway, but even that's entirely gone. If you look at the PMLN, where the democracy argument became so strong that we've chosen to put our life on the line and we want to be martyrs so that the process can be fixed. And then choosing, of course, to go abroad, fine, he's extremely sick. But again, there's a problem of the rhetoric that's being sort of denied through this action. Then you've got Imran Khan with all that he said that the one thing about me is that I'm the politician of accountability. And now <clears throat> he's uh, through a little, you know, back and forth with NAB and the courts and whatever. But essentially, he's also part and parcel of letting go. And uh, then you've got the PPP who's got their Supremo in jail and they're quite interested in working out deals on the back end. So I just think the space that's left now is for Jugadbazi, for petty ego fights, because in a way, everyone's come out of this really badly in terms of their central promise and their sort of primary narratives over the past six months. Well, and moral authority, really. Exactly, I mean, that's what's exactly. Been here. But yeah. I mean, this surely is a first in Pakistani history that all the political parties <laughs> ended up with egg on each other's face yeah. and lost moral authority yeah. in a swift matter of a few weeks. Yeah. And suddenly there's one political actor in the country yeah. that has not lost face. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll stop there. Yeah. But this is not, this is not a first. But that's because their party is discipline is really good. <laughs> They're trained right after FA. And, <laughs> and their party discipline is brilliant. <laughs> All these other parties are just like too chill on these matters. <laughs> uh, yeah, although, I mean, I think there was lots of questions about how, how, how coherent the party discipline really is or was. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, for me... For me, that party's discipline is actually central to Pakistan's existence. So yeah. I think any compromise there yeah. uh, leads to problems that are beyond the kind we can argue about, right? Yeah. Because it actually is yeah. truly existential. So I'm glad there's party discipline there. But I, but I think there's a longer-term play here that I, I think hopefully, hopefully we'll get to talk and write about in a lot of detail about the value of imposed uh, greater than yours wisdom. Yeah. And the idea there is very simply that either we're committed to this system in which the people choose where bad choices by the people are not punished by bad choices by some people. Mm. Have we... You reckon we've lost people with the... <laughs> with the layers that we're wrapping that in. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think it's also telling that, you know, we've made the podcast into a lasagna because that, <laughs> that's a condition in Pakistan. <laughs> 
the lasagna podcast. The lasagna podcast. Featuring cheese and pasta. <laughs> but no meat. But no meat. Because it's a ram. <laughs> jatka. jatka. Not, not jatka. Yeah. Jatka. Jatka. <laughs> oh, man. So, no, but I, I, I mean, the... I keep thinking about the election and what it could have looked like without the agricultural department making phone calls and without Karachi's results being what they were, <laughs> without any yeah. accusation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Fessel Wavna winning, yeah. you know, Karachi yeah. or... But, you know, <laughs> the agricultural department is great at grafting from one tree to another. We've been doing it for years. Yeah, but I think the problem is that... The Kino sh- shape ke tree pe, uh, like, like, it, like yeah. picking fruit before it's ripe. <laughs> <laughs> Cherry picking. Yeah. <laughs> Carrots <laughs> without sticks. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of uh, yeah. metaphors that yeah. we could, uh, that we could, uh, that we could use there. But at the end of the day... Uh, one of the, so I got into um, and I, I've been doing this consistently I've tried to engage people in conversations about the economy yeah and the idea is what they're trying right now is yeah, what they're trying right now is um, it's not the first time it's been tried Tighten the belt. Yeah. Stop overspending. Overspending is bad. Stop printing money because printing money is bad. Stop uh, propping up the uh, rupee against the dollar because that's bad. And conventional economics is very, very coherent on this. Yeah. It's all true. Everything that the government is doing is perfectly in line with textbook macroeconomics from the World Bank and the IMF. That's what the Bretton Woods consensus (coughs) suggests. It's just that... If you're older than like eight years old, then you've seen this movie yeah. three times since after General Musharraf, yeah. twice during, and at least three times throughout the 90s. I would say probably four times, yeah. but certainly three times throughout the 90s, and twice during General Zia. Uh, there's, no, there's no, absolutely no doubt that this works in terms of conventional, traditional thinking about economics, but does not work in actual economic environments like Pakistan or anywhere else. Yeah. This is not delivered. So, but people aren't, you know, because of the partisanship element, right? Like anything that you say that questions what's being done is actually an attack on the great leader and therefore, you know, more proof that you know you're on the take, and so it's impossible to have that conversation. Even today, like you know, I've been I've been thinking about whether I, I don't know how you think about this, but you know, I don't know if our role is as as shills for one or the other narrative, and I don't think either of us believe that we've ever played that role. Hmm. I mean, our role, I've at least I've always seen my role as a bridge between extremes. Uh, you know, the yeah. ability to bridge and and. At times, that makes even friends uh, look at us as as enemies because it's like, why don't you take a position? Yeah. Um, but more often than not, it actually, you know, you end up not satisfying any constituent, which is fine because I think there is quite a large audience for uh, reasonable and decent discourse. You know, we were talking about this before we started recording. Mm. Increasingly, though, the space 
for engagement versus shouting at each There's a difference between, like people think communicate, you know, we do this for yeah. a living as well, communication strategy, <clears throat> right? Mm. Like, how many RTs can I get on yeah. this? How many, how many views can we get? How many TRPs can we get? What yeah. is the rating on something? Um, I don't know, man. I, I mean, I think, at least I've come to think that there's room to revisit I think it's more valuable to have 10 people read something, feel it, understand it, and make it part of who they are than it is for 100,000 people to see something, feel a dopamine blast for, for, for uh, you know, a nanosecond and press, you know, heart or whatever else they press. Um, or no, I agree. I mean, I think it's probably even true of the past. If you look at people who are heroes in Pakistan, like Iqbal Ahmed, he wasn't somebody who published widely or he was involved in movements, but he wasn't entirely that famous as a figure. But what he was was that for a lot of key people, he was an influencer who got them to think and question their commitments. And as a result, I think he's had a huge role to play. But I think it's interesting that you brought up the question of the economy. One of the things that at least recently I realized that my own knowledge is wanting, but I'm also there with you, right? The idea that austerity of this form will lead to success could happen, but you'd have to at least ensure domestic stability for that process to happen. So imagine if you've got a demand contraction, you've got investors being skittish, but you've also got you know a political battle heating up, you've got uncertainty, you don't you know that the you know, unelected forces, what they're thinking or whether they've become somewhat uh, uh, less committed to the project. So then in that case, I, I would argue is that it'd be maybe something that wouldn't work. I think one of the things that's interesting is that the current account deficit has fallen and that's a good thing, but it's also fallen because demand has dried but up. But why? So, so this is what I've tried to do, yeah. you know, through social media as well, and I've obviously written about it quite a bit. I, I just want to explore why is a lower current account deficit a good thing? And yeah. you know, the standard response, especially for those that you know don't like to think too yeah. much, is what an idiot! Like yeah. you know, it's an economics concept, right? Yeah. Uh, but can I give you a point? I found this fascinating. Do you remember the East Asian crisis when it hit? Yes. That was fascinating. I wrote, I wrote a master's paper on there. So, on the what course. was the one country that didn't follow the IMF's advice? Malaysia. Malaysia. They still pegged their currency. They didn't follow any of the advice, and they came out of the crisis the quickest, by a margin of God knows how many months, uh, almost a year. I but think. I would say something. All when I talk about the economy, I'm deliberately trying to get people to break out of sort of the set boxes that have been made for but us. But I do. Because I, those set boxes don't work. Yeah, so yeah. I would argue, Joe, Indonesia, man, there was a, I think it was Safeway Bank that yeah. was the primary uh, guilty party. And what they've done is they borrowed so much money at almost a negative interest rate that banks were actually giving away money. Yeah. That, that's essentially what was yeah. happening. That's a, that's basically is hogged out on speed. Yeah. And it's also many bubbles. And it blew up. up. Yeah. It blew up yeah. and it created this massive crisis, which led to, you know, the IMF and the World yeah. Bank having an inordinate amount of power in that country yeah. in particular, to the extent that it actually took down a political legacy, you know, uh, and, and, and recreated politics in Indonesia. So it had a massive impact. But the question that I'm asking is prior to that blowing up of the system, Connie was growing fine. 
Yeah. Right? Public uh, sentiment was fine. Of course, current account deficits are bad because they could end up in, in an overheating and explosive situation yeah. that causes a collapse. But finding the, the optimal place where the current account deficit is fueling growth, yeah. but not putting you at risk of blowing up, yeah. is sounds to me and seems to me like a much more reasonable economic proposition as a model than creating a virtue of a shrinking current account deficit or a balanced budget. Like, I, yeah. this is really, I, I find it fascinating that there's this premium on balanced budgets and balanced yeah. imports-export. So I agree with this. And I think it's a problem in several other countries. Like, the Republicans always talk about it, even though they never follow it when they're in power. But The one guy that gave you a balanced budget was actually a Democrat. Clinton, yeah. yeah. And but, it was Leon Panetta. I don't know if yeah. you remember this, but in the 90s, yeah. I mean, Leon Panetta earned his policy stripes because he was the chairperson of the Office of Management and Budget. Yeah. And Clinton said to him that if you can balance the budget, the Democrats will forever bury the legacy of being spend and, uh, tax yeah. and spend liberals. Which is not true. <laughs> he balanced the budget. Yeah. They didn't win their reputation. Yeah. George W. Bush came in with a promise of yeah. lower taxes and, of course, yeah. much more prudent fiscal, yeah. but blew up the budget yeah. more, more than Clinton ever did in his yeah. eight years. So I think, I think you've nailed an interesting problem. And I've thought a little bit about it because I also wonder, it's like, how did suddenly a party and its followers who are populist and... And anti-IMF. Anti-IMF. Yeah. And also, you know, they make a lot of sure about the common man and all that. How is it that some of their supporters are now all in on a sort of neoliberal economic order and the prescriptions the, within that. What was the song? Play the song again. <laughs> the cult of personality. But let me tell you one thing. So I thought about this and I thought two things. One is that also in the previous five years, the argument that debt is bad. Now, it, it doesn't take into account, you can also have debt-fueled growth where you can actually overcome a debt trap if your economy grows. Take your Panama came, we had problems, the economy tanked, investor confidence was shot. It, 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 so we could never see whether that would happen. But, but or I would not. argue it didn't tank. Yeah. Uh, so, so the one, and again, I'm not stating this as fact, yeah. but I'm saying, let's think about the alternate case scenario. Mifta yeah. Esmail, who, who I've written about and who I personally am very, very fond of, but whose economics I have a big problem with because he's from the Chicago school. Yeah. We had him on the podcast, yes. and we had this argument yes, there as well. Exactly. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Mifta who started with the depreciation of the, of the rupee against yeah. the dollar, yeah. right? And it was Mifta that kind of, in a sense, bought into the idea, the, like the anti-Dar uh, yeah. uh, sort of approach to managing the economy. Now, I'm not suggesting that Dar's approach was prudent or ideal. But the alternate and its outcomes are there visible, visibly for us to see. Yeah. Dar delivered 5.8% 5, 5 growth. Now, he delivered it against a growing CAD and a growing fiscal, uh, uh, you know, I think crisis. Pakistan is in a fiscal crisis. No doubt about it. So those are legitimate critiques of that yeah. growth. But the counterfactual is that you are working to reduce your fiscal deficit. You're working to reduce your current account deficit. The growth has has basically cratered, it's completely tanked, and there's no real 
proposition that tells me we're going to see 6% growth in year X. Like, there is no economist in the country today, even the biggest PTI sort of shill, that w- is willing to go out on a limb and claim, forget 6 even 5%. Yeah. Abdul Hafiz Sheikh is not guaranteeing <coughs> even 5% growth yeah. before, this, before this economy, uh, before this term. Yeah. I, I could be wrong, but, but I don't think we've seen any projections that suggest that we'll recover that level of growth. If you're not growing and you have a population of 208 million people, you have a serious, serious problem. So the, so the argument is not, Dad was right, let's go back to that. The argument is, if Dad was wrong, we should have tried something different. But what Mifta Ismail, Shumshad Akhtar, Asad Umar, and now Hafiz Sheikh, four finance ministers since Dad, have tried, has not worked. So, I mean, I'll also add one thing. I do think one thing that we can think of that Dar made a huge mistake, which I realized uh, a bit later on, which was even though he pegged the currency and again, in 2013, like there was a, 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 there was a huge shortfall of electricity. There was other problems. And what was the one way that you could ensure that you wouldn't have a worsening of poverty? Because one of your major feeder costs to everything is gasoline and petrol is by pegging the currency so that you have low inflation, which in a way is what worked. The problem with that was I think that if they had done differential <coughs> tariffs, which actually um, I think they did in the last year only, because if you know that was MIFTA, that was MIFTA right? Now, <laughs> differential tariffs were essential from day one because it's true, Pakistan did get lazy on imported goods. Especially a lot of consumer goods and things like that. Because the biggest, I think, critique that I would that I would make for Dar isn't so much you know how he fueled the growth. Yeah. Although I think it's related. The biggest critique is that the greatest era of fuel price stability, low fuel prices, yeah. was wasted. Yeah. You could have fixed your fiscal. Yeah. By allowing a modicum of inflation at that t- at that time. Yeah. Basically, between 2014 and 2016. You held the rupee, yeah. I think lower than perhaps it needed to be, but more importantly, you held fuel prices yeah. lower than they needed to be. And no government has the courage to keep fuel prices high when international prices go down. Yeah. But that's your formula to fix fiscal. Yes. I'll tell you the another cost thing. Is, the cost is inflation. Yeah. But another problem is, I think also, is that when you look at the peg and you're the moment you see the peg, you know that no serious consideration went into saying this is how much it should be, right? So if your answer is that I'm going to peg the currency to keep inflation low, poverty low, or I'm going to keep inflation at a certain position, then through that process, you try to model what would be the ideal staying rate. But he kept it at 100 rupees as a psychological barrier. I don't, I don't know about that. I think if you asked him, and I haven't heard him speak about this, although I know he has spoken about it, my guess is that he would argue that the, uh, that the peg was driven by the knowledge that CPEC infrastructure investment required imports from China in USD denom- denomination. And in order to make sure that that didn't basically escalate to the point of making it prohibitive, um, you 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 peg the dollar to be to be totally a hundred percent transparent. 
I'm not entirely uh, bubbling over with facts on on how the decision for the pegging at that time was made. So I'm about as far into the discussion as I can go without feeling like I, I would need to consult with, you know, some reference material. Uh, but at the I, end I, of the... I read in a couple of articles which had background information, so I don't know again how accurate they are. But his was much more of a... Uh, sort of like a rhetorical like a whimsical point. sort yeah. of you know okay many many sort of paper okay right yeah it's possible because you, I expect anything especially from Dot I mean when you're the family jewel sort of accountant yeah. uh, and that's your only qualification yeah. is how close you are to the boss so I'm just thinking the reason I raised this is because like when you choose to make a decision based on this sort of thinking. then you don't keep the peg some random price that appeals to your vanity no then you look at the real exchange yeah. uh, the real uh, exchange rate and you look at uh, a whole bunch of i mean again i think keeping inflation low is a viable and i think even noble policy objective but if the cost is future generations which it clearly seems to be here then mistakes were made Look, at the end of the day, this entire discourse is, I think, reflective of the wider problem. Even in this conversation, we're talking about Dad as a person and we're talking about decisions that were made. There's so much of this is infused by personality. And when people hear this discussion, what, when they hear the name Dad, they actually lose. It's possible that you and I are the same. Like it's, yeah. not a, it's, a, human, uh, it's a human faculty is, is, is cognitive bias. There is still, I think, no comprehensive or coherent critique of the Nawaz Sharif era that isn't, that isn't driven by political interest, right? Like, and, and certainly there's absolutely nothing that, that I've seen in the, in the literature or in the critique of what's going on currently that suggests a better way through. Everybody says you just have to hold the line and wait and ride the storm out. We know what happens at the end of the storm. You ride the storm out, and as soon as there's stability again, the government goes back to its old ways, which is printing money and overspending. I'll tell you another thing. I think one of the interesting ways to look at this, because I forget whose analysis this was, but I read this recently. Uh, maybe it was Atif Mia's, I'm not sure. But one of the questions is that like, when you look at a five-year term, you look at, say, these are the broad strokes of what I need to do, that this is what I see as the diagnostic of the problem of this country. Now, at least in one respect, in 2013, Nawaz Sharif's diagnosis was electricity. This is the thing I have to crack. And by and large, that's been achieved. Of course, maybe inefficiently, other problems exist. It's amazing that we keep putting this caveat there. Dude, it was delivered comprehensively. Even if Nawaz Sharif is an evil man and a guilty of all the corruption he's accused of, you can't take that away from him. No, no, I He agree. doubled so, your megawattage capacity. I there agree. is no electricity crisis I in agree. Pakistan today. I and agree. there was a big time one from yes. basically 2002 yeah. till 2013. Yeah. I agree, I agree. But anyhow, even if we had to look at it and we say like these are ancillary things that still need to be done. But if we, going back to your question, right, is why are you going down the austerity route if there is no end game in sight that's going to benefit everyone? So one example would be, and speaking of what I had read earlier, and I thought this was interesting, is that 
any economy, if you're looking at the current account deficit, like that's the diagnosis as the principal problem by this government that, you know, we don't have enough dollars and we're always indebted because of this persistent problem that shows up every three, four years. So the other answer is rather than curtailing the demand is that you boost exports. And for all the countries that became export oriented for five years, that's all they did. They made the conditions to make exports easier. So right now, even if you get a condition where you're more stable on the current uh, account front, that will not necessarily improve exports if your ease of doing business, which of course has improved to some degree, but if uh, you have not done the right incentives, if you not just giving out subsidies is not the only solution, but you look at all the other bottlenecks that create the conditions for export orientation. Look, I, like I if mean, you look at China at that period, right? That's all they were telling everyone: export, export. export. Look, China though is a longer-term story, and I think yeah. again, anything that predates the lifetime of like you know, the typical seventeen-year-old, you know, sort of you know. And by, I mean, I really mean this. I mean, I think that I've seen seventy-year-old men behaving like they're seventeen. So that's the intellectual. But you know age. my theory, right? Yeah. I, I as far as I've been following things, is Pakistan has a collective memory of seven years. Yeah, maybe 17 is too much. You're right. Yeah. Maybe it's seven. Yeah. Here's, the, here's the point. Vietnam, Bangladesh, yeah. Sri Lanka, Cambodia, and now Myanmar. These, yeah. are, these are current examples. By the way, the U.S.-China trade war has created a massive opening for countries. Yeah. And if you talk to, and, and people do, I was talking to our friend Shakir Hussain. Yeah. And uh, Shakir, you know, obviously operates in a different market, but he was talking to a buyer. Uh, somewhere in the in the U.S. or Europe, and uh, the buyer said, "Look, we get approached by the governments of Vietnam, the governments of Cambodia, the governments of Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Ever since the trade war blew up, these countries and their governments have gone all in on basically pushing what they're producing. Yeah, what am I building up towards? I think it's too easy to blame the government. I mean, certainly, I think the one clear economic failure above, you know, that that." About, the, about which there can be no debate is Nawaz Sharif and Isaac Dar utterly failed to increase exports. In fact, between 2013 and 2018, in real terms, exports actually declined. Yeah. It, there was an absolute real decline yeah. in exports, yeah. which is unforgivable for a country this size. But I tell you what, if somebody said, what is Imran Khan doing about increasing yeah. exports? I would also, say, I might I would add say, about that. I just want to say one thing is because we sort of also, I don't know if the facts figure it out, but at least anecdotally, we were deindustrializing because of the energy crisis as well in the preceding five years. There's, look, yes, there's lots of reasons why that's happening. But the reason I'm about to present, yeah. I think, is the primary reason. Imran Khan will not be able to increase exports. And the foundational reason is that you don't make anything worthy of selling. This is a very uh, difficult and uh, very painful reality. Most of the Faisalabad-based exports in particular are driven by subsidy. Yeah. These guys have enjoyed uh, velvet glove treatment from the state in terms of not only taxes, but in fact subsidies. They now have become so accustomed to subsidies that they're not capable of competitive production. The only manufacturing that I think has any global competitiveness is Sialkot. And it's not just sports goods. Sialkot as a 
as an industrial culture and surgical goods, culture lots of things, has yeah. something going for it that generates this kind of global competitiveness. But it's, Sialkot is not big enough to get your exports. Like if somebody says, well, Pakistan has to double its exports. Bro, like, no, it's not going to. Because you're, you've been hovering between 20 and $25 billion in exports for the better part of over a decade. And there are structural constraints. The reason that exports don't grow is not foundationally because policymaking in government, whether it's PTI or PMLN or the military, is bad. It's because all three of these kinds of governments and the PPP, you know, uh, so all four kinds of governments since 2000 uh, or since 1999, have shown one thing above all that they're willing to do. And that is that they're willing to continue to be bought off by the states in this country who sustain a crony capitalist regime in which they don't have to be competitive to maintain their wealth. And as long as that crony capitalism continues, you're going to continue to do two things. One, you're going to continue to be a slow export growth nation. And two, you're going to continue to keep your middle, your small and medium-sized enterprise and entrepreneur suffocated under the burden of these mega-rich states whose only innovation is that they know how to buy off the government. No, I agree with that. I... I find so on that part, you can't yeah. blame Assad Umar or Imran Khan. Yeah. I mean, where you can blame Imran Khan is how willing he is to play footsie with the very states that he should actually be going after. I mean, at this, I mean... Uh, but, that, I, but that's a crime that everyone else has been yeah. guilty of as well. I, I also think that, like, I mean, in part, I, I thought that was very eloquently put, that whole explanation. I also think that this is also an incredibly difficult situation. One of the places where I sympathize with the government is... If you've got suppressed demand, if you've got an economy that hasn't tanked but has slowed down considerably, part of the problem of going after all of this at one go will just further that cycle. And unless you have, let's say, you know, some supply coming in, whether it's from Arab countries, China, America, the institutions, to be able to do that, you'd need at least cover for two years before you can move forward with this. Yeah, but that's where, that's where again, it gets linked into geopolitics and geostrategy. But I mean, you know, if you have a habit of behaving in whatever way you want on the security front, yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that, as I think even on the podcast, we've talked about this many times. I've spent the better part of the last decade writing about how there's a lot of foundational relevance and there's a lot of content to validate Pakistan's insecurities and even yeah. some of its behaviors. But those behaviors come with a cost. If, if you support or ignore the presence of certain groups in your country, and those groups go out and kill people who happen to be representatives of otherwise countries that you need yeah. when it comes to your economy, you, you have a real problem. Yeah. So you can't, like you can't, you know, the left hand has to know what the right is doing, and there has yeah. to be some synchronicity. They yeah. don't have to be perfectly... Like, you know, Pakistan should never be burdened with the perfect moral conduct, uh, because no country behaves in that way. Yeah. But the left and the right hand have to be, at some level, be connected to the same brain, at least. And unfortunately, <laughs> and unfortunately they're not. The right hand keeps doing... Whatever yeah. the right hand wants to do, yeah. the left hand is responsible for making sure that there's enough money. This yeah. is not 
ever going to be work yeah uh, functional and and I, I hate being being the guy that equates our economic woes to you know wider security concerns but I think you know the one thing that recently struck me so I really admire how we've stuck to Kartarpur in in spite of everything and the deteriorating relationship with India so who's I, responsible for that I'm going to make you say it. Uh, the army chief. Yeah. So I think this is something that people really need to get. Right? Yeah. That there's a bunch of people in the discourse who are big Bajwa supporters. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, to, to label people and to paint people in a certain way. But on the conduct with India, go back to the day he became army chief to yeah. this day. Has he made one, one mistake, one signal that could, be, could have been misread? Has he, has he made one single mistake when it comes to India? No, he hasn't. It's yeah. the most exemplary national conduct as far as India is concerned in our history. The one that hasn't been encumbered. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that there have been these overtures before, but then they were brought down internally through subterfuge. So I think, Not I mean, I've written away. about this. Yeah, and, and, right? and, and you, you know, Not to you, take away from this. I, I, no, no, I but it's fine. This. What yeah. you're saying, let me, let me yeah. translate what you're saying. You're yeah. saying, yeah, Nawaz Sharif made so many different efforts from Atal Bihari Vajpayee yeah. in the bus diplomacy yeah. to what he was doing with Narendra Modi. And every time he was... Uh, he was ambushed. Yeah. I think the counter-argument that we have to consider, I agree there, there was an element of ambush, but the 51% hand in that ambush was Sharif's own manner of dealing with the military. Sharif thinks that the military is going to behave like the DMG, where, you know, senior officers are going to come and, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, that's not how the army works. That's certainly not how the army works in a post-colonial state with the history that Pakistan has had. And, and so I think that some of the responsibility, maybe, maybe it's unfair for me to say 51%, but starting from Jangir Karamat onwards and upwards, at every major moment, Nawaz Sharif's choices on the army have, have been, I think, less than ideal. So yes, we should look at uh, the notification is rejected as, as a seminal moment and we should look at the so-called Don Leaks. Is that what it was called? Yeah. Uh, you know, those are, those are seminal moments. And there's an element of uh, gameplay from, from elements that should not be playing those games. Yeah. But the, the converse is also true. In a, in a civil military disequilibrium uh, environment, the way that it exists, the, incumb- the, the responsibility that falls on the civilian principle to manage affairs in a manner that neutralizes the threat whilst delivering the minimum baseline of national security uh, that needs to be delivered, that responsibility is on the Prime Minister of Pakistan. Yeah, I disagree on this one. I think that the equation, if it's put that way, where both are rational actors with agency, but if the negotiating table is all or nothing, which quite often it is through things like darnas and all that, you're going to have every prime minister in a situation where he's not going to win that. 
I just want to say is that even though on Kartarpur, while I like it, I just think, I mean, the key there is that if you look at it from a front, we were talking about synergies and you were talking about how there's a little bit of synchronicity. Well, here you've got something which is a religious thing that falls within Pakistani territory that has amazing optics of how Pakistan has dealt with it. And yes, credit to Bajwa on this. But again, you know, the key thing is also is that if you look at how well that's played out, imagine what good it would do to Pakistan is if you treated your internal constituents the same way. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so that's the irony of this. Not to take away from it. I think it's a great no, thing. No, but it's... Even if we can't manage that, this still should still happen. But I would say it's not the irony of Kartarpur. Really, it's the irony of this, of this country. This is a country that was that was the product of a minority rights movement. Yeah. This is a country that was founded by a by a leader who was himself a member of a minority sect. Yeah. This is a country whose foundational uh, leaders were a hodgepodge of members of minority groups. Yeah. Uh, the financier uh, of this country uh, from day one was a guy called Sarah Khan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be said about how far and how dangerously Pakistan strayed from the vision that Qadi Azam Muhammad Ali Jinnah had for the country. Uh, and ironically, uh, this is what I wrote about last week, that between Kartarpur and Ayodhya, I feel like it's too easy for Pakistans to have, uh, Pakistanis to have a bit of swag. And I think we should. I think we should be proud of Kartarpur and we should look at India with great pity and and disgust at, at the Ayodhya judgment. But at the end of the day, there are some internal sins that we have committed and continue to commit with respect to Jinnah's vision that that render our promise as a nation uh, less than less than what it should be. Oh, I and, agree. And, and, I mean, Absolutely. I, to me, I mean, I, this, I listed this in the piece, but just uh, to 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 restate it, 1971 and everything leading up to it yeah. was the first great sin. Yeah. The Second Amendment was the uh, second, uh, you know, great sin. Yeah. And uh, the Kargil clique and its con- conduct between 1998 and 1999 was, was the third great sin. Yeah. Um, no three things have undermined Pakistani at the worst. If I had to add a fourth, it would be the state of uh, what are now the newly merged districts. Yeah. Why it took 70 years to get to Where those districts yeah. being, being merged. I think if you take those four things, they undermine the concept of a Muslim liberal democracy, which is what Qadiyazm was trying to establish. Yeah. No, I agree with you. And I think that's very well put. So I think we can come to a close on this. It was great to start talking. We're back every week because we're so excited and we're so professional. And, <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to start bringing back uh, guests. Yeah. Um, and, and let, let me up. tell you one thing. So just uh, it's really uh, famous that uh, did you know that in Islamabad, uh, whenever there's now a party, People are no longer calling their friends from KP. Really? Yeah, because the KP guys won't come anymore. Why not? Because then the guys from Sindh and Punjab don't show up. <laughs> <laughs>
Pakistan's news channels got to basically produce free content. Yeah. The whole talk show, yes. everything, every, all, the entire production yeah. for the entire evening was, yeah. was ready, set, go. Um, this one wasn't as colorful. No, but their a cappella game is on point, man. Some of their stuff was really good. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> I, ain't going, I ain't going down that road. Yeah. Um, Fussy, it's been an absolute delight and pleasure, as yes. usual, for you to uh, have joined me on your uh, podcast, uh-huh. uh, How to Pakistan. Uh, we keep hearing from uh, lots of folks uh, how much they enjoy this conversation. Anybody that has any ideas, please tag Fussy on Twitter yeah. and let him know as to what uh, topics we can explore. Uh, that's all from me. Jazakallah uh, khair. And uh, inshallah, talk to you very soon. You too. And thank you, everyone. Hope you have a great week. <laughs>